Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Thanks for tuning in to Talking France. Happy New Year to all our listeners. It's the first episode of 2024. And indeed, it's a special one because it's all focused on answering questions sent in by our listeners. So over the next 30 minutes or so, we'll try and answer a variety of your questions about France and the French, including, do the French have a sense of humour? Why are there so many speed cameras in the country? And what's the best way to learn French in France? We've also put a couple of your questions to our politics expert, John Litchfield, including the big one. Can anyone beat Le Pen at the next presidential election? I'm Ben McPartland, your host, and as well as John, I'll be joined by the local France's editor, Emma Pearson, and journalist Jen Mansfield. Thanks for joining us again, Emma, John, and Jen. This is a special episode, as I mentioned. Emma, what's so special about it? It's not written by us. Well, some of it is, but the ideas have all come from listeners to the podcast. We asked our listeners what they want to know about France. It could be anything. It can be about France. It could be about French people, about French culture. And this is what they asked us. Indeed, we've received quite a lot of questions, actually. Now, apologies to those we can't answer. Some of them we've kind of covered in the podcast in the past or even on our website. And some of them were great ideas for articles. So keep an eye on our website. We'll look to answer a few of them in articles on our website. But uh, we received a great variety of questions. We'll start with one from Tom Raymond, a former teacher in the town of Béziers. Why haven't speed cameras been banned yet since literally everyone in France loathes them? Emma? Well, it is true that plenty of drivers don't love speed cameras in France and in other countries, in fact, but they do play an important role in France's falling rate of road deaths. Now, historically, France was one of the worst countries in Europe when it came to crashes and deaths on the road. But a series of government measures over the last 20 years, including speed limit reductions and speed cameras, have seen these numbers slowly fall. These days, around 3,500 people are killed each year on the roads in France. And obviously, each one of those is a tragedy. And that is, in fact, nearly double the number of people who die in the UK, which has a roughly similar population. But it is down from nearly 5,000 people per year in 2006. And it's now on the EU average. So France is no longer a European outlier. Um, That's not just down to speed cameras, of course. There has been a lot of work done to try and cut rates of drink driving. And in 2018, the speed limit on rural A roads was cut from 90 kilometres an hour to 80 kilometres an hour. That caused a lot of controversy, but the government estimates that it saved around 100 lives a year. Mm, It rolled back on part of that, didn't it? Yeah, it kind of became a whole political controversy. And in the end, after a lot of back and forth, the government decided that they would put the decision back to local authorities. So some places it's 80, some places it's 90. It's quite confusing, obviously. It is confusing, yeah. Um, Well, look, if speed cameras have helped to cut lives on French roads, surely they're really popular and drivers love them. Um, Yeah, not so much. All around the world, motorists do tend to get quite cross with a speed camera that has snapped them. But in France, there is an extra political dimension, and that is the urban v rural divide. So in a lot of rural areas, it's very difficult to live without a car because the public transport is not very good. Whereas in the cities, you can easily be car free. And in consequence of this, a lot of motorists in rural areas view speed cameras as a kind of extra tax 
that's levied only on rural dwellers because they're forced to use their cars because there is no public transport option. Now, obviously, it is possible to drive within the speed limit and therefore avoid getting a ticket. But nonetheless, that is the view from a lot of rural France. And this was particularly prevalent during the Yellow Vest protests. A lot of the anger in those protests came from people in rural and suburban France feeling sidelined by the folk in the big cities. And the speed cameras took a lot of the brunt of that anger. At one point in 2018, it was estimated that 80% of the country's speed cameras had been vandalised. Most of them were burnt out. So the cameras weren't exactly banned at that point, but they were mostly quite ineffective because they were vandalised. They didn't work. They have mostly been repaired now, but it's still not all uncommon to see a camera that's been vandalised. Either it's been burned or it's just had its camera covered over or sprayed over so it doesn't work. Mm, One story that uh, got us chuckling a couple of years ago at the local was a driver in France who drove past a speed camera and stuck his middle finger up as he drove past and he actually got taken to court and I think it was thrown out. He wasn't even speeding, he just got done for putting his middle finger up to the camera. Yeah, it was actually because it was classed as offending a public official because someone in an office had to look at that photo and was therefore offended by his middle finger. It was all a bit ridiculous. It was ridiculous. Look, does the government have any plans if if they're so unpopular? Does the government just not want to kind of get rid of them or reduce their use? No, in fact, it's extending the uh, the programme. They did devolve some road safety decision-making back to local authorities, like I said, about this 80-90 speed limit thing. But in general, the programme is being expanded. The big difference is the rollout of unmarked speed camera cars, which are operated by private companies. Most speed cameras in France are fixed in position and they're intended to be visible so that you can see them up ahead and slow down. And there's also gendarmes who operate mobile speed checks. But there are also now what they call radar cars, And at the start of 2023, there were 381 of these on the roads, roughly two thirds of which are operated by private companies. And the intention is that eventually they'll be rolled out across the country. Presumably hard to spot. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of the point. Mm. At the moment, they're mostly in the north and the west, Brittany, Normandy and Haute-de-France. They're mostly used on A roads or urban roads. They're rarely used on the uh, on the highways, mm. on the auto route. The idea is that they're mobile so they can target roads that are accident black spots and also so that private operators can free up gendarmes to do other work. But you won't be surprised to hear that they're unpopular with drivers. The Ligue de Défense de Conducteur, the Drivers Defence League, basically said exactly what you said, that you know they're, they're hard to spot, so they're kind of trying to trap mm. motorists. And yeah. they said they kind of added to stress for drivers. Indeed. The fixed ones, you have to have a sign like a few hundred metres in front of them warning you of the camera, the placement of the camera, but the ones who are unmarked cars, obviously there's no warning. Exactly, yeah. I mean, there are obviously signs telling you what the speed limit is. Interesting stuff. Thanks, Emma. Let's move on for a question for John Litchfield, our politics expert who joins us on the line from Normandy. Now, since 1958, France's system of government has been what's known as the Fifth Republic, which obviously followed the Fourth Republic. One of the key aspects of the Fifth Republic, which was established by Charles de Gaulle, is the relatively wide-ranging powers it gives to the president at the expense of parliament. Advocates of creating a Sixth Republic would like to see more power in the hands of parliament. Danny Daly, finance director of MOS, wants to know whether this Fifth Republic is still fit for purpose and, importantly, whether there is far too much power in the hands of the president. Over to you, John. Well, too much power. I mean, it does give a lot of power, sort of in a theory, it gives a lot of power. In fact, you know, the constitution of this republic is not very different from that of the last, and that the final power still lies with Parliament, as we've seen uh, this year. And we saw whenever the president loses his, his majority in the Parliament, that the, the power goes back to the Prime Minister and, and to the National Assembly. So, 
yes, and it, it, it does give a lot of power to the president because essentially that's what all French politicians with ambition want to be. They don't want to be prime minister, they want to be president. And I think it's not going to change, not in the near future. And you have to look back at why it exists as it did and why de Gaulle instituted this sort of top-heavy, top-down presidential system in which parliament was somewhat reduced in its power and parties were reduced in their power. It was because they'd had, after the war and before the war, a political system which was in many ways dysfunctional because the parties couldn't agree and because prime ministers came and went frequently, you know, within a couple of weeks, sometimes prime ministers would change. It happens in other countries, it happens in Britain now, it's happened, it happened in Italy for always. But he thought that that was preventing France from advancing, even though France was being quite successful economically in the 50s and before he came and changed the system. And I think, you know, we see what's happened since Macron lost his majority in parliament and you see how divided the French political system is now. That if you had a system that was a parliamentary system, I think it would be a recipe for that kind of morass, that kind of immobility again in France. And I think, you know, although there are many things one can criticise about the Fifth Republic and about the presidential system in France. I think anything that replaced it with a parliamentary system, as some people like Mélenchon are calling for, would be pretty calamitous in the present French uh, political climate. We'll hear more from John shortly. This next question is from a listener called Leslie, and it's a good one to explore. Leslie asks, why are French classic comedy films so important in popular humour. I'm not that much into movies and my colleagues make fun of me because their jokes are always lost on me and on me alone. It's a good question, lastly. It's true that foreigners often don't get film or cultural references. And in fact, French humour as a whole can be hard for foreigners to understand. It's not just a language thing, it's understanding the references and the backstory, the context. It's even led to accusations from foreigners that the French are simply not very funny. Jen, fill us in. Do the French have a sense of humour? Well, of course they do. (laughs) And according to a 2019 study, 70% of French people consider themselves to be funny. Personally, I find this estimate to be a little high, but I think it's unfair to say that the French have no sense of humor, as some English language blogs and internet users seem to think. And the French themselves have been pushing back on the idea that they have no sense of humor really since since the 1700s and Voltaire. In 1761, he wrote a letter talking about whether the English really invented the word humor in French. And he said, the English believe that they alone have this humor, that the other nations have no term to express this character of wit. However, it is an old word in our language. And in this sense, it's used in several of Corneille's comedies, Corneille being an old playwright. Interesting. I think it's uh, terribly unfair to suggest the French have no sense of humour. Trickiest thing about humour is that it requires a strong command of the language and culture, especially if that joke is a reference to something you're not familiar with. Yeah, absolutely. And the French love wordplay and puns, which is kind of hard to laugh at if you don't catch the double meaning. (laughs) But for listeners, it might be helpful uh, to be able to predict some of the humour styles that you'll encounter in France. There were a couple that stuck out to me when I was researching this. The first one related to French people's love for ping pong style jokes, which the French call faire d'esprit or mot d'esprit. The word esprit actually means wit, and this type of humor relies on a quick, subtle response. So French people have been trading quips for centuries. This goes all the way back to the Ancien Régime. We spoke about this in an earlier podcast episode, but the film Ridicule is great if you want to see how these esprit or wit played out in the Louis XVI court in Versailles. But this type of humor 
can sometimes come off as a little bit insulting or maybe a little rude because it feels like it's sort of at the other person's expense. There's a really good article by the Paris-based blogger Courtney Traub about this, and she talks about how she spent a large chunk of her first few months and years in France being offended or a little bit bothered by these small jabs, like the boulanger jokingly telling her that she'd need to spend the day jogging after buying a bunch of pastries, for example. It's quite funny. <laughs> well, I don't know. If you're on the receiving end of it, it can be a little bit hurtful. <laughs> I have to say, this would absolutely happen to you in Britain as well. <laughs> I don't think Courtney should visit the UK anytime soon. Eventually, Courtney started quipping back uh, with some of this typical French teasing banter. And she wrote in her blog piece, I'd arguably cracked at least one of the codes of Parisian, if not French humor, what we'll call the ping pong game. So I think that's fair. All right. I mean, one of the things that perhaps I noticed about French humor and and other Brits I've spoken to do is that maybe the French aren't as self-depreciating as we are sometimes. We mock each other. We like to mock each other. I know that, you know, a group of Brits will kind of take the pee out of each other incessantly. Is that a thing among the French? Are they perhaps too proud for that? Well, it would seem that at least some French people agree with that view. In an interview with the New York Times, the French comedian Blanche Gardin gave her view on this idea that the self-deprecating stand-up comedian is less common in France. She said, we're not used to sharing personal information quickly in relationships. And in France, we always think about being losers. So we don't want to hear people speaking about it. We don't have this positive background to say, let's enjoy this loser thing. But still, I find this criticism to be a little bit unfair, too, because one of the most timeless aspects of French humor is putting this mirror to their own society and criticizing it. Well, at least the French government or the powers that be. If you read Molière, which is, you know, arguably France's most famous playwright from the 1600s, you'll see a lot of satire and caricatures that are poking fun at the powerful. So the kings, the queens, the clergymen of the time. And these days, uh, you see it in the satirical magazine, Charlie Hebdo, which is a great example and still relies a lot on caricatures. Mm, Satire, definitely an important part of French humour. What about farce, slapstick? French humour tends to go down that route sometimes. To good effect, I should say. (laughs) Yeah, this is the third theme that I came across. The term farce was actually first used in 15th century France to describe a specific type of entertainment, namely plays that involved exaggeration, physical humor, so slapstick, and improbable or unfortunate situations for the characters. And I found that this type of humor is really present in a lot of French comedy films. Mm, We've recommended a few of those really good French comedy movies in our previous episode of Talking France. Emma, the French funny? the French funny. I think the uh, the French are pretty funny. The uh, I find French politicians are very good at like uh, smackdowns of their rivals. But one thing I do find is that French humour tends to be very referential. I mean, obviously all humour has cultural mm. references, but it, there seems to be a lot of that in France. And if you don't get the reference, then it's just not funny to, um, to you. Mm. Recently, when the US... Uh, donut chain Krispy Kreme came mm. to Paris. One of their adverts was macaron d'émission, which mm. like the macaron, the pastry, give up, go home mm. because the donuts are in town. Mm. But it's a pun on macaron, the president, d'émission, macaron resign, which we've seen like plastered all over the capital for years because everybody hates him. But like, if you don't understand that, then you wouldn't get the joke. So I think, yeah, you need to, you need to be here to understand Definitely. it. Definitely. And I totally get the question that was originally posed in that, you know, I spent years here trying to understand French jokes and realised that most of them were referring to like cult French comedy films, you know, that they'd all seen and they were joking about that. I had no idea why they're all laughing, you know, so just... Yeah, I think the more you learn about France, the more Definitely. The, you get the humour. I currently follow a couple of like satirical um, accounts on Instagram and I'd say I get roughly 50% of the mm. jokes and the rest just go straight over my head. But when I started following them, I only got 30% of the jokes. So now mm. I feel like mm. I'm, I'm making progress. It's good. I mean, the other thing is it's very hard to joke with the French in French, I found. I found it kind of, it, it went with my level of language. So there'd be times when I'd, 
kind of tried to make them laugh with my, you know, reduced level of French, which is like a 10-year-old's level of French, and realised I was making like 10-year-old level jokes at them. And yeah, no one was it's... laughing. It's just like, it's very, so I just stopped. Yeah, trying to do a quick comeback in, yeah. in French. Your language has got to be really good for that. So I think a lot of people just give up at exactly, the beginning. Yeah, true. Right, let's get serious again now and bring back... John Litchfield on the line from Normandy. John, this is a big question uh, we're asking a lot. A lot of people are asking it uh, in France and beyond. Is there anyone who can defeat Marine Le Pen once Emmanuel Macron's term is over in the 2027 elections? That question is from Dominica Jewell from Bazoche au Ulm in Orne, Normandy, up near you, John. Fire away. Yes, there are people who can defeat her. You know, the way I would put it is that in the last two elections, I was very confident in saying that Marine Le Pen cannot win. This time in 2027, which is a long way away, I would say, yes, she can win, unfortunately, but I don't think she will. I mean, there's still there's a possibility she can win it this time. The last two times, I never thought that there could be 50% of people in the second round who would vote for Le Pen. I can see circumstances this time where that might happen, I don't think it will happen. I think it depends how strong the, the successes to Macron in the centre are. I mean, there is the obvious person who seems to be running away with the race, which is long, long in advance of the actual election. I agree at the moment, uh, even though it's not been formally started, is Edouard Philippe, uh, Macron's first prime minister, who seems to be likely to emerge as his successor, but not you know, a, a direct replacement of Macron has different views to Macron on some things. But I think will emerge probably as the champion of the centre. And I think the way the French system works, it means it's very difficult I think, for Le Pen to win the second round of the presidential election if there is a strong and attractive candidate of the centre there. Because Macron maybe wouldn't have won a third term, but if Philippe was there, I think many people on the left who detest Macron would reluctantly vote for Philippe rather than Le Pen. And therefore, it would be easier for him in second round. Even if he lost in the first round, even if he came second in the first round, it would be easier for him to get the 50%, 50% plus one vote that he needs in the second round than it would be for Le Pen. It's going to be a very, very interesting election, is it not, John? It's going to be a horrible election, a nasty election in many ways. You know, it, it, a lot of things... It's a long way ahead. You know, here we're talking about 2027, but not too early to talk about it in a way. I think what we'll see in 2024 is that as soon as the European elections are over, even now, we are talking about who's going to be Macron's successor, which is the key element of, of this election in 2027. And I think that that will become a much more public and much more spoken of, informal, unstructured race to become the Macron successor after June, after the European Parliament elections. But how is that decided? You know, there's no primary system in place. There's not, not even one single party of the centre which is likely to produce the different candidates. So it's going to be a weird kind of informal primary decided by opinion polls. I don't see how anyway it can be else it can be decided and whoever clearly is in the front runner by say 2025 I think other candidates will come under strong pressure to back out and Macron maybe will have enough influence left to make that happen and one person emerge um, but if that doesn't happen and there are two or three candidates at the centre then you might get a left-wing candidate in the second round maybe Mélenchon Mélenchon versus Le Pen that would be a very very close race no it wouldn't Le Pen would win then I'm pretty sure, and that uh, you know would be calamitous for the country, in my view. But that is one way Le Pen could win. Now, this next question was left anonymously, perhaps understandably, but it made us chuckle and got us talking, so we thought it was worth including. One listener asks, we think in all seriousness, why isn't there a better selection of meat pies in France? Emma, <laughs> this has to be answered by you. 
Yeah, I love this question. It was anonymous, but I am going to take a wild stab and say that this person was probably British. Yeah. I mean, better is obviously a subjective judgment, but it's true that France doesn't really do pies in the same way no. as the British. The closest thing I've found to a meat pie is either pâté en croûte, which is a sort of coarse meat pâté wrapped in pastry. It's vaguely similar to a pork pie. Or if you go to restaurants, uh, a pitivier, which is kind of a bit like a, a pasty made of flaky pastry. But no, they're, they're not really the same. But it I has think, equivalence. Yeah, I think way, sometimes yeah. it's helpful to kind of think laterally, not to try and replicate the no. the food stuff, but to try and find something that occupies the same place in the national cuisine. So if you're looking for something that is ubiquitous, quick, cheap and delicious, I'd say that France's equivalent is either the quiche, you can buy it cold by the slice from the supermarket deli counter or have it hot in, with salad in a cafe, or the croque monsieur as a snack. But honestly, the place that I always really associate with meat pies is sports matches. You know, it's the classic halftime or post-match snack. At French sports grounds, you will not see pies, definitely, but instead they have sausage baguettes and these are really good. It's a hot cooked sausage, usually either a merguez or a Toulouse sausage, mm. inside a baguette topped with onions, mustard on, or ketchup. And my top tip is to get them from the stalls outside the ground rather than stadium catering, as they're usually better and quite a lot cheaper. In the spirit of scientific research, I have tried the sausage baguette at most of the grounds in France's top 14 rugby league. It's been a, you know, ongoing passion project of mine. And the best one I've ever had was in Toulouse. It was a beautiful Toulouse sausage, of mm. course, in a baguette topped with a mixture of cooked onions, peppers and tomato with chips on top. Um, All right. And a company with a beer, obviously. Well, there you go. Helpful advice for that listener. I mean, the key is they should really stop looking for meat pies and think of alternatives. Think, yeah, go go, go, go Gallic. Dirt would yeah. be my tip for that. Okay, fantastic. Nicola Hebb of Ode wants to know, why do French people love to buy French cars in spite of them not being very good? Are they subsidised or is it the habit fueled by advertising, fierce national pride or simply historical? Jen, are you taking this one on? Yeah, I am. So I wanted to look at this from a couple perspectives. The first being, is it true that French people love to buy French cars? And that is true. French people do have a notable preference for French cars, although there are plenty of non-French models on the road too. The favourite car of the French as of 2023 was the Peugeot 208, 208. And French people's favorite car brand was also Peugeot. After that, French people listed Mercedes-Benz in second place, followed by Audi, Volkswagen, and BMW. And we actually didn't see another French car brand come in until sixth place, which was Citroën, or Citroën, and uh, Renault, which came in eighth place. As for why, there is some evidence that it has to do with national pride and wanting to boost the French economy. So a 2010 study looked into French car brand preferences, and it found that 49% of the respondents said they were committed to buying French because of quote-unquote economic patriotism. For the 51% who did not favor purchasing a French brand car, the primary argument was cost. So over 80% of those people said that certain foreign brands offer better value for money. All right, I want to go back to this kind of accusation that French cars are rubbish. I'm proud owner of a Citroën Berlango. But I've heard this before of people suggesting that French make rubbish cars. Is there any truth in that, Jen? Well, in terms of quality, it depends on what metrics you're looking at. I noticed that most reviewers were pretty positive about the French car industry's capacity to make a good, reliable, small vehicle. I'm not even sure I would say that French cars have a strongly negative reputation. I do think that part of this misunderstanding comes from my fellow North Americans. 
French car brands like Peugeot, Citroën, and Renault no longer sell anything in the U.S., but they used to. In the 1960s, there were almost a dozen car models available for purchase in the U.S. from France's top car manufacturers. But over time, they left due to dropping sales and struggles with adapting to the U.S. car market. The last one to go was Peugeot in 1991. Generally, French car brands were just not as successful in the U.S. because the cars were built for really different audiences. Plus, there was only a small network of dealers that were selling French cars to begin with. And the main issue is that French cars were mainly focused on economizing fuel. So because the costs were higher, you know, in Europe at the time, but Americans prioritized cars with higher power, acceleration and speed. Plus, Americans were a bit less concerned with maximizing space. So buying a small car was just less of a priority. So is there a chance that we could see French cars back on the market in the U.S. in the future? Well, potentially uh, Peugeot has discussed plans to re-enter the market, but for the moment, that seems to be a bit stalled. Mm, the reason I got a French car was that someone told me that all the mechanics in France know how to fix French cars and they're much cheaper to get fixed than if you buy a foreign car. Good advice. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Although I have to say, when I was in the UK, I had a Peugeot, which was a, yeah. a French car, and I got it because it was cheap and reliable, which is pretty much all I yeah. look for in a car. Yeah, good point. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Emma. Let's move on to a question from Sherilyn, a writer from the third arrondissement of Paris. This is a good question that many will find interesting. How do people learn languages in a variety of ways based on different dispositions? It would be fantastic to get an array of different approaches for those of us who live here. Jen, you want to go first? Yeah, so... I moved to France with a really basic level of French, you know, courtesy of American public schools. So I would say that I was around B1, but I really, really struggled with conversational French when I first arrived. I had spent about six months living in Senegal right before I moved to France, and I built up a bit more confidence with French there. But the French that's spoken outside of France is actually very different than the French that's spoken in France. So when I got to Paris, the way that people slurred their words or used a lot of slang was really confusing for me. I was happy that I had at least some of the basics because it made it faster for me to be able to catch on to what people were saying. But I really didn't put myself out there in French until like my second year in the country. Uh, I would say that the first year was just surviving bureaucracy and then once I was settled, I felt more comfortable to try and, you know, make friends and date in French. And I think that there were two real turning points for my French personally. The first was meeting my now partner, who's French. And the second was working in a restaurant. So for the first few months of my relationship, we only spoke in French, uh, which was a lot of work for me, but I really progressed language-wise. And these days we've kind of relaxed on that and we speak kind of a mix of French and English. And then the other aspect was working at the restaurant. And this was a huge help. In the beginning, it was hard, but you memorize a few of the initial phrases pretty quickly. And then over time, you build up a lot of confidence in approaching people in French. So I would say my advice, and I know this is easier said than done, is to put yourself in a situation where you're forced to speak some French. So if you're single, try dating. Uh, If you aren't interested in dating, there are apps like Meetup or Bumble Friends where you can replicate a platonic version of that tete-a-tete that you'd get with a French person on a date. If you can, and if you have time, take on a part-time job. Just spend a couple months working as a server in a restaurant, even if it's just once a week. It'll make a big difference. Or um, if you're retired and or maybe you cannot work, consider volunteering. There's a French government website called Je veux aider. We have an article on it on the website, but you can scroll through some options in your area. But really, anything that forces you to interface with the French public, it'll be intimidating in the start, but it really will do wonders for your confidence over time. I think what I've learned is that the the only way you really pick up French is when you're forced to speak it. You literally got no choice. So I give thanks to three people for me learning French. And bearing in mind, it took me a long time to learn French. What, how long have I been here? 12 years? 
it's still pretty crap compared to what it should be. But it's really not. Your range is very no, good. No, but it's not, it's not good enough for 12 years. Like, it should be way better. But, I mean, look, we work in English and, you know, I speak in English at home mainly. So it's like, so what are the occasions when you're first, when you're forced to? One was in my first job in a pub where my boss, actually in an Irish pub, was Tunisian, didn't speak a word in English. He only spoke in French. So it's like, God, I need, how am I going to communicate with this boss? I literally just had to learn French, you know, phrases, listen to how other people spoke to him, learn what his instructions were. And then before you know it, you start to pick things up. The other person I have to thank is my mother-in-law, who actually speaks bloody fluent English, but refused from day one to use any of that English. She's like, right, you're in France. You're going out with my daughter. You're learning English. And she just peppered me with French nonstop to the point where I literally had no choice. And um, and I've spent, you know, but it is thanks to her forcing me to speak French. And the third one, I guess, is just having kids. Like, I really, if you, even if you don't like kids, I recommend having kids just so it helps you learn French. I do think this is a bit of a radical suggestion. It is, it is radical and it's expensive. It's a really expensive way of learning French. Obviously, it's tiring as well. You don't get much sleep, but you will come out of having kids in France speaking French because, you know, when you're with them, okay, you try speaking English, but when they're, with, when they're with their friends, when they're with friends of them, you have to speak French. When they come home from school, they do their French homework and it does put you in another situation where you're forced to learn French. So it is genuine, right? I think recommend to anybody who's in France, they've got to put themselves in a situation, either find a mother-in-law, find a Tunisian bar boss, or go go and have some kids. Uh, and I realise that's not possible for everyone. But Emma, this reminds me of when you started your job in France and my instruction was to you was to find a French partner. You got no choice, it's part of your contract to help you learn French. Did that happen? Uh, no, and we need to talk about that because I'm pretty sure that is against French employment law too. Um, it was in just... small print and you, written in ink <laughs> in your contract. Um, yeah, I didn't do that. So how, um, how have you picked up French? And I've also not had kids just to, just to learn French. I moved here with absolutely zero French when I was 31 and I found it a real struggle to learn. And honestly, I still do. I'm not someone who picks up languages easily and I still struggle with my French. You can order a sausage sandwich. Fine, I can right? order a sausage sandwich. Yeah. Well, you can point for that, so that's easy. <laughs> Um, I have done quite a few like formal language classes since arriving in France because I didn't, mm. you know, do language studies at school or anything. Yes, yeah, it really does. I've done uh, Université Poitou, which is kind of the equivalent of the Open University. I've done Alliance Francaise, a few other Paris language schools. But honestly, a lot of my sort of language journey has been about accepting that I will probably never be totally fluent. I'll always have an embarrassing accent and I just need to be like less embarrassed about it and talk anyway. Um, a few of the things that have helped me actually is language exchange groups. I think these are really good because everybody is in the same boat. You go along and speak uh, speak French to French people and then you switch to English and you help each other. And I never feel like people are judging me because the French person that you're talking to has probably just made a load of grammatical mistakes in, in English. So it's a nice atmosphere. They're usually also either free or cheap, which is kind of handy. And you can find them in online in most towns or cities. Talking of cost, uh, a handy tip for people who are working is that the government's Mon Confirmation training budget can be used to pay for French lessons. And also, mm. if you're in formal French classes, I find that you need a bit of kind of mental toughness. French teachers can be quite brutal. And I think for people who've come through a different school system, the idea of just like a French teacher telling you that, you know, you're rubbish and you failed and you'll never be any good at this can be quite mentally crushing. But they do it to everyone. So you just need to um, you just need to get used to it and try to stop crying. But um, yeah. that would be my top tip. 
No, it's interesting you've gone through a very different route than me and um, Jen. But I mean, the one point you mentioned that really strikes a chord is you have to not be embarrassed when you try and speak French. You've just got to crack on, make mistakes, humiliate yourself. I found that I get corrected so much by French people as well. You've just got to accept it, hands up. You know, you get little la wrong or you, you know, you get some grammatic, the amount of people who correct me, you know, they're trying to help you. Don't react badly to that. French people do like, correct you a lot, but it is usually, almost always, in a, a helpful yeah. sense. And like when I first arrived, like for at least my first year every time that happened to me like my mental monologue was like you're a loser you're an idiot this person thinks you're a fool but they do do it to absolutely everybody and they even do it to themselves sometimes and so French people certainly do yeah. it to their kids so it's yeah. like a it's a normal thing they're trying to be helpful just say thank you very much and accept it indeed some great advice there we hope we've helped answer your question and thanks to all our listeners who sent in questions this week like I said at the beginning keep an eye on the website we'll answer some of these in upcoming articles on the website you'll have much more information there that brings us to the end of this special episode thanks Jen thanks Emma thanks John and we'll be back with more Talking France and more Talking Points from France next week 